0: All right, church, if you could open up your Bibles to the book of Galatians, and we're going to be in Galatians chapter 5, verses 19 through 21. We're in the fourth part of a series that we're calling Grown Good, this reality of the fact that God has done something inside of us that has established this new beginning so that we're actually not just having a good relationship between us and God, but that that actually does, as the video said, go outwards. It impacts those around us. Last week, we talked about the good law, the fact that that Moses in the Old Testament brought the law of God, which laid out his expectation, the holiness of God, the understanding of what God calls us to. And we recognized really quick, we stink at fulfilling this law on our own. We break it. And we've broken the whole thing and that we needed a Savior. And Jesus was that Savior who fulfilled the law and then instituted the law of love. And John 1, John uh, chapter 1, talks about how uh, Moses brought the law, but Jesus brought grace. And then all of a sudden, we had this new reality that we were under, which was phenomenal. Now, what, what Paul does in Galatians chapter 5 is he goes from talking, at really the first several chapters of Galatians, he goes from talking about the, the fact that there's the good law that Jesus has established through the cross, and then he says... And this is what you do with it. And then he gives tons of practical, like crazy practical steps of do this and do this. And, and, but he starts off, and what we're going to start off with this week is we're starting off with the negative. The negative is what not to do. The thing I love about scripture is that it doesn't just say don't do this. It says don't do this and start doing this. Take out this poisonous, toxic reality and insert in a healthy, vibrant, thriving reality that God's crafted you for. Paul goes straight into the negative right off the bat, saying, as a human being, as a, a citizen of humanity, but absolutely as a follower of Jesus and marked by Him, there is a thing, there's a reality that we look at what we have and purge out that which is off the grid. Um, and so I, I said this, on, I put this on NBC's Facebook page, but I'll reiterate it that we are, this passage deals with some pretty explicit issues. And we're not going to, you know, leapfrog over that. We're actually going to talk about it. Um, but this, if you are really awkward about that with having um, kids in here or your kids, not kids in general, but your kids in here, um, you may want to employ the services of Echo. Um, otherwise, well, I don't know. If you've been having a really boring week, this could be the exciting part, the drive home. <laughs> it could be just phenomenally um, Unforgettable. And so we're going to go there today, so just giving you a heads up on that. But let's go ahead and jump right into the negative of what Paul is talking about in Galatians chapter 5, these toxins that we have within reality. Verse 19 of chapter 5 says this, the acts of the flesh are obvious. Pause real quick. When When he says flesh... He's not just talking about physical being. He's not talking like the, the, the acts of our body are obvious and, and the body is bad, so what we do with the body is bad. He's not saying that. The word that Paul likes to use for flesh is, is like this concept, of this this is like the default humanity, BC. Before, before God got control of my life, before Jesus redeemed my life, this is what I'm totally prone to fall into, what I gravitate towards. And Paul is saying, as a Christian, those leanings and those draws are still there. They're kind of still on the map, but we have a response to them. So he says, The acts of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity, and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. This isn't a, an exhaustive list. This isn't everything. Paul's just shooting from the hip. And he says, look, this is, this is like this type of stuff. He's, this isn't the full list. This isn't like, well, I, nothing on there applies to me. And so, boom. It's like, it's, these, these, this is like trademarks of, of a life that's lived outside of the design that God's crafted and created us for and, and saved us for. Um, and, he, and when he gets to the end, and he says, therefore, I warn you, as I did before, those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. Uh, he's talking about this concept, because I mean my brain automatically goes to heaven and, and says this must be saying that if if this is you, you're not going to heaven. I think he's saying more than that. I think what he's saying is that just as Jesus said the kingdom of God is at hand, there is a future reality and a present reality that we have within the kingdom. The, the type of kingdom where our humanity thrives because it's the, the humanity that God's created us. And so he says, not only are you not thriving in eternity, you're not going to thrive on this planet um, within this, this, what you've created to be. Now, again, as I, this whole series, we're talking about this, this reality that we have between us and God, but also how it impacts others. And the byline that I put on it is, some of the best things we can do for others are the things we don't there's a lot of things that we do for others that we're intending to be good, but it ends up blowing up in our face, and, and just human reality one-on-one, is sometimes the best thing we could do for someone is not do something for someone in this particular way, and these are things that not only are things to avoid and to purge out of our life between us and God, but because they poison our relationship with those around us. They are the negative things that just ruin our life, and when we're thinking about negative things, of course, we have to go to Michigan. Michigan, uh, in particular, a little town in Michigan got a whole lot of notoriety in the past uh, couple of years, a little town called Flint. Have you heard of this place? Yes. Flint um, uh, got a lot of attention in 2015 and at the beginning of 2016 for uh, not any of their past or history, but for their water. Flint gets their water or did get their water from Detroit and Detroit gets it from Lake Huron. Um, if you have to get your water from Detroit, that's like Number one, you're in a bad situation. But on top of it, because they got water from Detroit, Detroit um, accessed their river and also Lake Huron, that whole process was super expensive. Flint residents had to pay more money for water than almost any other section of the United States because this bananas project right here, this process. And so Flint leadership said, we got a good idea. Let's bypass this and let's go ahead and go a different route. Let's go and access the Care Gennady project. The KWA was a project to build a pipeline from Lake Huron straight to Flint. And Flint's like, that's gonna be way cheaper, let's do that. Problem was, they said, we're all in on this project and this idea before the pipeline was finished. And when Detroit hears that they're jumping ship down the road when this thing is finally finished, Detroit freaks out and says, that's it. Our contract is canceled. You can find your water wherever you want to find it, but it's not coming from us. Dum, dump, dum. So Flint's like, well, what do we do? We need water. And the deputy mayor had a brilliant idea. (laughs) Guys, we're looking for water. We have water flowing right through Flint, it's called the Flint River, why don't we just access our own water, we'll keep it real man, it's going to be, we're buying local, and we're going to access water, that's what we're going to drink, and so they decided in April of 2014, that's it, we're going to drink our own water, you can have your own water, Detroit, peace, and they started, and we'll just do this until KWA comes on over, it's going to be awesome, problem was, is that things happened in Flint River up until that point, Uh, In the 1900s, Flint was known for something, and what they were known for was a really good thing, being an automobile city, a vehicle city, in, in specific, Buick City. I mean, it was a place where they manufactured tons and tons of cars, but before people cared about the environment or were ecologically sound, they were dumping tons of junk into the river. And even after Buick City was torn down, the effects, the toxic effects of what happened in that river remained. And so when the people are turning on the water taps, all of a sudden they're getting water and it's looking a little funky. Not only looking funky, smelling funky. It smells like chlorine um, or, or um, sulfur, which is never a good sign. I mean, it's not. And so they start to realize this is not a good thing. Not only how it looks and smells, but also something's happening with their kids, their children. The six to 12,000 children in this community that are, that are drinking this water day in and day out are starting to lose their hair. And adults are starting to get Legionnaire's disease and other, other waterborne um, diseases that are coming in. People like, are, are having struggles that they would never had on levels that they've never seen. Something was terribly wrong. It was becoming very apparent that what was coming out of the water was death, but they had no idea initially how bad it was until they realized that the source of the poisoning was something very specific, and it was lead. That within the river of the Flint River and also in what the Flint River did to the pipes in Flint, it caused a high amount of lead to get into the water system, poisoning its people. This is a lifetime sentence. For all those children and all those people, trying to rectify this on a health level alone will be in the billions because these kids have a lifetime problem that they're going to be carrying because lead stays with you, And the reason why lead stays with you is because it tricks the body. There is nothing redeemable about this element. There's nothing redeemable like, well, the body can use it for a No, it's all bad. Be- this is one of those that is all bad for the body. And the thing about it is, is that the reason it's so bad for the body is not only is it toxic, but the body doesn't know that it's toxic. The body won't reject it. The body, when it's getting lead into the bloodstream, it doesn't see it as lead. It's like, this is like Calcium. And the body interprets lead as calcium. And it's like, we can use this. This is like poor man's calcium. Let's take all of it. And then it goes to where calcium goes in the body. Where does the body use calcium? The bones. And so all these children is having lead going straight into their their bone marrow. And all of a sudden, their bones are filled with it. It also goes into the neurons. The ability for neurons to fire can be impacted by lead. Which is why back in the 1800s, when people, uh, guys who were making hats and used lead to do it, Bit by bit became more and more insane because they had the inability to have coherent thoughts because their neurons weren't firing as well and they were called mad hatters. They were going insane because of the lead poisoning that they were experiencing. And now we have served it on the dinner table to children, thousands and thousands and thousands of children who will experience this for a lifetime. The more that you come in contact with lead, the more disastrous and damaging the effects are. They are ongoing disastrous effects of lead, which is similar to what Paul is saying. He's saying there's something that, there are things that are, there's no redeemable quality in it. It's not like you can look at it and say, yeah, well, you know, that's okay. In within a a human's life, but let alone a Christian's life, there's things that are absolutely disastrous long-term and when he wants to, to lay out the point of what that does, he uses this word in the last sentence of 21. He uses the word Praso. And proso, um, he uses it right here. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. All of us have in some way, shape, or form um, done what is on that list. Sexual immorality, fits of rage, drunkenness, whatever. We, we all have, we can tell stories about that, Right? He's not saying if you've ever. The King James version translates it more or less, giving the impression if you've done this, you're never going to experience the kingdom of heaven. But the past, but that verb or that that word right there is. It's talking about a practice um, that is translated from the present active participle of Praso, which means this ongoing reality. This is a lifestyle. It's like I know what God's choosing this as my 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 approach, and Paul's insistence is that this is poisonous. This is disastrous. And so today we're going to go ahead and talk about the um, three aspects of our everyday life that are poisoned by living off the grid of what God has created us for. We're going to be talking about poisonous sex. We're going to be talking about poisonous control. We're going to be talking about poisonous um, party and basically how that impacts each one of us. In verse uh, 19, um, Paul uses a couple of words, and the first word that he uses to describe this off the grid, well, in, the, in the, the kind of the package of, of the uh, poisonous sex package of, of, of what he's talking about, he uses the word immorality, and he uses the word pornea, which is the word that we get pornography from. Um, pornea, in the first century, and you've got to understand this from, from Paul's standpoint, Paul's a Hebrew, and so his idea of sex um, is this idea that, that God has crafted this thing for a husband and wife to experience within the covenant of marriage. And, um, and anything outside of that would fall into pornea. Pornea was like a catch-all word. It was a word that described anything from like sex before marriage to adultery to um, homosexual practice to, uh, to abuse to molestation to uh, any type of thing that's going to be sexually oppressive. It, it, it's, it's out there. That, so that, that pornea was a catch-all word for all of that. Then he uses the word akartharsia, which was for impurity. And we, we get the word cathartic from... For, you see the root of cathartic in that acatharsia. And if you've ever... I don't know if you've ever done... Um, any yoga or breathing exercises, but people like, or or if you just are around some new agey people, but they they sometimes like, just take a cathartic breath. Just just take a cathartic breath. Have you ever ever taken a cathartic breath? Cathartic means purifying breath, like a (gasps) Ah, cleansing breath. So we're all going to take a cathartic cleansing breath here because some of you are really stressed out about what I'm talking about. So this is for you. And so everyone, we're going to, on the count of three, we're going to take a cathartic breath and just let it out. So one, two, three. Don't you feel better? I do. This is the opposite of that. This is acathartic. Acathartic is not a cleansing breath. It's a polluting breath. It's wrapping your lips around an exhaust pipe, telling the guy to hit the gas pedal and breathing deep. That's acathartic. It is impure. It, it, it's, 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 it's breaking apart. It was the word that they would use for a wound that's not getting better or more healthy. It's actually getting more and more infected. It's unhealth. It's, and it's, it's marked by that. That's what's impurity. Um, the last word that he uses there in 19 to describe this, this poisonous package is sensuality or asalgia. Now, I would say this. this I'm not a big fan of this being translated as sensuality because I think, I think there is redeemable factors in sensuality. God has made us sensual people. He's given you senses, touch, taste, sight. He, he's given you all these senses to enjoy. Those are graceful gifts of God to enjoy. So, being sensual, I mean, is being human. What sensuality in the negative is, is saying whatever my sense tells me, whatever I'm feeling hungry for, I want it. I want it on my terms and I want a lot of it. So if it's food, I'm, I'm just pouring into that sensuality that way. If it's sex, I'm pouring myself into sexuality that way and, and just basically defying any parameters. I'm just going for it. That, it's the idea of lewdness or just I'm totally out of control in regard to some type of sexual component. Now, when you look at this poisonous package, the first thing we have to understand is that the Bible is not anti-sex. In fact, the Bible is totally pro-sex. But if you go out into the culture, you're going to find a group of people that are, our culture is totally pro-sex, right? I mean, no one's going to be out there. It's like, yeah, I mean, watch TV for 15 minutes and you're going to find out that culture is pro-sex. So if culture is pro-sex and Christianity and following scripture is pro-sex, well, what's the problem? We're all on the same page, Right? no the key reason we're not on the same page is because of the starting point Christians followers of Jesus are saying my starting point for sex is the starting point of everything and my starting point is God God is the creator of sex sex is not something that after God created Adam and Eve all of a sudden Satan's like I've got something that's going to totally trip them up sexuality that didn't happen In fact, sex was something God created that was good and beautiful and intended to be enjoyed and intended to be fun and intended to be something that people that spouse. he created it for within the covenant of marriage to be a giving thing. I'm doing this as as a gift. This isn't just me taking, I've got physical needs. It's a gift I'm giving to my spouse. That's God at the starting point. So if Paul's talking to a group of people, and Galatia is not like this pure, you know, righteous area. These are people who have the same definitions of sex, understandings of sex as our culture today. They're almost parallel. And so with God as the starting point removed, they have what we have. Sex? Well, the starting point is, um, is me. Uh, what do I want? Well, whatever I want is, is the starting point. Uh, and so I can I follow. I mean, this is America for crying out loud. I'm going to follow my heart. And, and I've got dreams. I've got sexual dreams. And so I'm going to make those dreams come true as much as I want, wherever I want. And, and no one should tell me not to. Because if, you tell, if, if we are the starting point and you tell someone that you shouldn't do that or that's not good, who are you? How oppressive can you be and how offensive can you be to dictate your morality? Let your morality be your morality. We are the starting point of our definition of sex. So that that makes perfect sense in our culture. And what Paul is saying is this. You know what, God? There's a lot of stuff that you call me to I don't feel. I don't want it. In fact, I want the opposite. But because you're the starting point, because you're my master, I'm surrendering myself to you as my starting point. That's what God calls us to do. And what Paul is identifying is the fact that as Christians, a lot of times what we do is say, no, 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 no. I totally believe God is the starting point. He's the creator of all. But I also totally want to be the definer of how I live out my own definition of stuff. And Paul is saying this, this doesn't work. This will tear you apart. This is disastrous. But it's that starting point that helps us understand how this can be poisoning and what we do that actually poison ourselves. Um, as individuals, we, we approach sex in such a way that it actually ends up poisoning, again, ourselves and others. Uh, one of the ways that we, we poison ourselves is through um, consuming, having a self-consume type of mindset when it comes to sex. Again. God invented sex as this covenant between a husband and wife, right? It's this giving, this gift. It's, not t- it's, it's this gift that's being given. Self-consuming happens when we say, well, for example, like through pornography and masturbation. That is like basically saying, you know what? Sex is mine. It's for me. It's just to feed me, to make me happy. To... And so basically, I'm just grateful that I can live in a time frame where I can get this wherever I want, whenever I want, and I don't have to worry about messing up or messing in with any relational um, confusion. There's no complexity. I don't have to worry about having to build a relationship or, or commit my life to this person. No, I can get this in my basement by myself. Self-consuming is the opposite of what God has, has called us to, and yet this is something that we struggle with. Because, again, we have identified this is something I can, this is intended for my pleasure, not anyone else's. Um, Jesus, when he was talking about lust in, on the Sermon on the Mount, he says, we all agree that adultery is bad. And everyone's like, yeah. And he's like, well, I'm going to tell you one more. Lust is just the same thing. And everyone's like, whoa, 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 hold on a second. I didn't mess around with my neighbor's wife. He says, I know, I know. But you were lusting after her. You were, like, fantasizing with, about, about having sex with her. And that's adultery in your heart. Come on. No one got hurt. No marriage got disturbed by that. And Jesus said, do you understand that I don't just care about your body, I care about your heart. He's conveying in the Sermon on the Mount this amazing reality. And when he uses the word for lust, he uses a a word that can also be used within the realm of greed. When it comes to money or being wealthy, there's nothing evil about having money or, or being wealthy. What scripture takes issue with is when we, in having money, Forget about the needs of others. And we think that our wealth is all about us. And so we start to fantasize about how we can have it. And if I was able to earn this type of income, I could buy this, this, and this. You know what? I, I, maybe if I work extra. I'm going to work extra. I'm just going to keep on working harder and harder. And I'm going to become a workaholic. Yes, I'm ruining my family. But you have to understand that this is worth it. And I, I'm going to be able to get this type of things. And Jesus said, when, when you get into that point, you start to fantasize about this thing that you, that's just out of reach. And it starts to warp you as a human being to the point that you're willing to take shortcuts and hurt people to get what it is you want. And Jesus said the same thing happens in lust. When I have lust, I'm basically hungering for this connection, this this, this thing with somebody that I can't have, but I'm going to fantasize about it. I'm going to invest my brain into as much as I can so I can simulate that. And what it ends up being is um, no complexity, no relationship, just soulless impulse reaction. And one of the pushbacks that, that that would be common is, but seriously, no one gets hurt when I'm watching porn. Or nobody gets hurt during masturbation. This is not something that's, that's, that's you, you say this is poisoning people around me. Nobody knows. I could talk for a long time about, The people who are victims within the the porn industry, we've had people here have talked with us about about that, about the fact that those um, people in the film, that the women after the shot is completed, walk off stage and just throw up for what they were forced to do for a paycheck and how they want to leave the industry and how they're not interested in doing what they're doing, but they feel like they're trapped. We could talk about that, but we won't. Let's just talk about you. What they're finding pornography doing in males alone is not only diminishing your ability to enjoy sex that's real with a real person, diminishing that capacity, but it also does something where you are less likely and less inclined to get into a marriage relationship because of the fact all of your physical needs and somewhat emotional simulated needs are taken care of by you. You become more of a hermit. You're not called close to God and close to others. You're called close to you. Self-consuming. Not only that, but it also, the porn industry has affected people who even haven't even watched any pornography because it has imposed upon women the need to look like and act like those in the films. And if they don't step up to the plate, well, they're just not really good enough. It, this does, it poisons relationships and the ability for relationships to thrive. I want to encourage you, if you're, if you're someone, uh, male or female, but... It, but certainly if you're male, because um, men tend to struggle with this more, to get this app on your phone, your iPad, your computer. This is called um, X3 Watch. You could open up your app, uh, go to the app store right now on your phone and find it. It's free. And basically, this an I have this on my phone, on my iPad, and on my computer. And the reason I have this, um, and what this does is if I, if I um, search for something sketchy or if I go to a, a website that's off, it's going to send an email of all the things that week that I went to that that was flagged to my accountability partner. And that's scary. I mean, don't you think that's a little intimidating? It is. It is. The reason I do this is because I need this. Because I don't trust myself. And if you trust yourself, you shouldn't. You're not trustworthy. <laughs> And if you think you are, I want to encourage you just to consider with humility the fact that maybe you, if you think back on your past, have allowed yourself certain allowances where you've allowed your mind to drift in such a way that maybe even if you haven't gone into the porn, um, you've allowed your mind to drift in such a way where you've been off the grid of what God has created you for. And that's not empowering or liberating, it's enslaving. I would encourage you to, to do this and to get on this, get this, put this on all your devices. And just to say, because the peace that I have, knowing that this is on there, that, that anything I search is gonna, that's flagged is gonna go to my accountability partner, that produces a whole lot of peace in me. Now, if you're a uh, upper elementary school kid, a junior higher or a high schooler, and you're just like, oh gosh, why did he have to say this? I know what my mom's gonna say on the ride home. It's gonna be the most awkward conversation ever. You know you really should put that on your phone. The pat the pastor. He put it on the screen. So it's really important. <clears throat> Beat him to the punch. During the message, before we even get out of here, get on your phone and get it on your phone and, and load it so when your mom's like, hey Timmy, I need to talk with you about something. Uh the pe Whoa, mom. <laughs> It's already loaded. I already loaded it on there. It's good. We're good. We're done with this conversation. Let's go get McDonald's. <laughs> step out and step in with accountability. The second thing we do to poison our relationships is that we, cons- we have a consumer approach of sex versus covenant. Okay? Basically, again, it's, it's saying um, that, and this is true that, uh, that all sex outside of marriage, and this is biblical perspective on this, all sex outside of marriage is using sex selfishly rather than using it to serve. You're asking someone to do with their body for you what you're not willing to do with your life for them. You're asking someone to give you some physical currency to make you feel a certain way, even though you're not willing to commit your life to this person. And what that's saying is, this thing that God's crafted as a thing to serve each other, I don't want to wait for that because I've got needs now, I want this now, and I'm, I'm a consumer, which sets your relationship up to fail. Because you're going, to get what you, you're going to get what helps you out and what's, what feeds your needs. And when this person stops sexually feeding your needs or stops relationally feeding your needs, you can kick them to the curb because you're just a consumer and you're out for the best product. And this person clearly isn't. God has called us into a covenantal approach, which is radically different. Now, um, this, this obviously um, leans into something that's really common in our culture, and lots of people in our church um, are, are in this, which is, is, you know what, we're not married, but we really love each other, we're really committed, and so we're living together. And I gotta tell you, again, if you move God from this situation, living together makes perfect sense. I mean, this is brilliant. This is like training wheels for marriage. We can get sexually compatible, we can get it relationally compatible, brilliant. I mean, who would not, if it's financially helpful, it's, it's awesome on so many levels. Why would we not do this? And culturally, that's the sentiment. But social scientists who are not Christian are starting to say, there's something wrong with marriages. We can't figure out what it is. And they start to ask people who are, are because people are divorcing so often, like, what, what, what caused this? And they start to investigate one of the things that they're finding had to do with people who live together or cohabitate before marriage, that that is not training wheels for a successful marriage. It's actually a recipe for disaster. If you don't believe me, believe the New York Times. They said this. Couples who cohabit before marriage, and especially before an engagement or an otherwise clear commitment, tend to be less satisfied with their marriages and more likely to divorce than couples who do not. These negative outcomes are called cohabitation effect. Partners often have different, unspoken, even unconscious agendas. Women are more likely to view cohabitation as a step towards marriage, while men are more likely to see it as a way to test a relationship or postpone commitment. How uncommon! And this great and this gender um, asymmetry is associated with negative interactions and lower levels of commitment, even after the relationship progresses towards marriage. If you got that, basically that means that it continues to weaken the the, the relationship, even once a couple goes into marriage. It's, it's poisoning it, even after they made that commitment. Uh, one thing men and women do agree on, however, is that their standards for a living partner are lower than they are for a spouse. Sliding into cohabitation wouldn't be a a problem if sliding out were easy, but it isn't. Too often, young adults enter into what they imagine to be a low-cost, low-risk living situation only to find themselves unable to get out months, even years later. It's like signing up for a credit card with 0% interest at the end of 12 months when the interest goes up to 23%, you feel stuck because your balance is too high to pay off. In fact, cohabitation can be exactly like that. In behavioral economics, it's called consumer lock in. Founding relationships on convenience or ambiguity can interfere with the process of claiming the people we love. A life built on top of maybe you'll do simply may not feel as dedicated as a life built on top of the we do of a commitment of marriage. Non Christians, and they're finding something that Scripture is saying, yeah. This is, and this is a struggle. Again, this, is, this might be tough for some of you because, I mean, it seems like this should work. But what the, one of the people that they interviewed for this that ended up in divorce um, after living together with her, her boyfriend, she said, you know, when I think back to living together, I realized that I felt like I was a nonstop audition for marriage that I had to live up to, that I had to pass the test, like a job interview the whole time we were living together. If I continue to give him what he wants sexually, if I continue to giving him what he wants relationally, then maybe he'll commit to me. So so above the consumer model is this non-stop, am I good enough? Am I good enough? Am I good enough? And the covenant model is just the opposite. The covenant model says, you know, we're entering, we're getting into marriage and we, we, we are not sexually compatible. We're just stupid, but we have a lifetime to figure it out and we will practice. Covenant says we're getting into marriage, and we're not relationally compatible. We, we got, we, we're too self-absorbed, but we have the, the peace of the covenant. This is a lifer for us, and we have a lifetime to figure this out, and you have the peace of understanding we're going to go through thick and thin together. The last um, thing we poison in this poison package is believing that sex equals fulfillment, and this is all, regardless of what, what, where you're, you you find yourself sexually, this is a, a narrative that we have believed as Americans in particular, um, that, that romance is the core of, of our life. I mean, Disney has helped us out with that, that it, there's no story without a romantic story inside of it in order for people to be complete fulfilled. And the, and the problem is, is that that's not reality. A friend of mine, um, that we've had here at the church named Christopher Yuan, uh, who, who would, would self-identify as someone who, who naturally, or within, with as far as he can tell naturally, is would self-identify as someone who has same-sex attraction. That, that, that he has friends that are Christians that, that self-identify as gay. Um, and, and he says, you know, before I was a Christian, I was having lots of sex, lots of homosexual sex, and, and this was very normal and natural. There's no problem with that. I didn't have any conviction against it at all. He says, when I became a Christian, I realized that I needed to surrender my whole life, not just my sexual life, but my whole life to God. And this was just one area. Of it. And he said, and the thing is, is that God didn't just come in with like a magic wand and go, boom, heterosexual. You are now free to find a, a wife of your choice and enjoy sexual love. He says, that didn't happen. Those, those leanings that he had before are still there. But see, the, but Christopher is someone who's saying, but I already know who the source of love is and the, and the def- definer of sex. And if God ever did change my heart or give, my, give me a drive that would be uh, for females, I know the avenue to experience that sexual dynamic. And it wouldn't be in sex before marriage with them. It would be heterosexual marriage before them. It would be with, between a, the, in the covenant of marriage between a husband and a wife. That's what God would, that's what, that would be my avenue. But if God never does that, if God never turns my heart for my seemingly natural leanings, I can still be completely fulfilled without that. In the words of Shane Claiborne, you can live without sex. You can't live without love. And Christopher Yuan is a guy who is one of the most loved individuals I know and one of the most fulfilled individuals I know, which is why he gets really frustrated when he goes into churches and there's really well-meaning, older, heterosexual Christian women who are like, I got the thing that's gonna fix you. She's so hot. She loves Jesus. She'll get that fire burning and you'll... (laughs) And Christopher's like, Please, older heterosexual Christian lady, step off. You think that I need that. You heterosexuals are all the same. You think I need that to be fulfilled? How fulfilled are you, heterosexual, with all the sex that you're having? Does that fulfill you? If it did, you would look at the people who are having the most sex in our culture as the most fulfilled people, but they're not. They're the most sad and the most lonely. So sex is not equal fulfillment. It doesn't. God does. And that's what Christopher is holding on to. We move into swiftly, into uh, the poison of control, and, and, and Paul just identifies things that we take control in in some odd ways. He talks about idolatry and sorcery. That is control, because what people would do is like, I need a God that can answer my questions. I need a God who can answer my desires. I want my life to, to be the way I want it to be. If that's not going to be the one true God, I can, I, can worship, I can make an idol, and I can bow down and pray to it. And sorcery, the word for sorcery that Paul uses is pharmakeia, and pharmakeia is the word we get pharmacy from. And that's because in order to really get the God of your choice to do what you want, you would drop some serious drugs because you're just being totally high. I'm like, oh, he's totally has got to see how totally dedicated I am. I'm totally experiencing him now to get him to do what I want to do. That's idolatry, and you're the idol of it. You're the one who's trying to get God to be controlled by you to do what you want to do. People do that with false gods, and they do it with God too. Paul talks about jealousy. Jealousy is a control issue too. It's saying, what does my neighbor have what kind of control does he have financially or materially or relationally that he can have all of that and I can't? I want it. I wish I had it. That's a control issue. Angry outburst is the moment when you realize how control is a farce. You do not have control. And our reaction is an angry outburst. This person is not doing what I want them to do. Why are they not doing what I want them to do? Why won't you stop it? Why are you doing this again? Why is it that I, why is it that I can't control my life? I realized now and you might think of me as a really laid back person and I am. I am so laid back until I'm not. And I realized how not I was within the first year of our marriage Julie and I. And Julie I'm driving and Julie's talking and stuff and we were we were having a fight and we were having a big old argument and I'm like being the laid back guy that I am just hey but what yep, uh, and then all of a sudden like right it's explosive it was, I started yelling, I'm white knuckling the steering wheel, and I'm just yelling at a volume that I've never had, and I'm, I'm chewing my wife out with my words, I was like ah! and as I'm doing it, I'm thinking in my head, dude, take it down a notch, but I couldn't stop, and then she's crying, and I'm like, what just happened? And then we had kids. <laughs> And I was cured. I never got lost my temper again. It was a, No. I found brand new creative ways to be totally laid back until I wasn't and then pow, angry outburst. That is a sign I am taking control of the lack of control in my world and it's not healthy and it's not something that a follower of Jesus should do. All these things are basically saying I recognize this poisons my relationships with others. And so what I need to do instead of, of feeding these is be the type of person that's saying, I'm going to turn to the only one who ultimately is in control, and that's God. When my world is out of control, and it is often out of control, I can have peace and not have an explosion because I know that he's in control. Amen? So that, that's, that's what We need to understand that's what he's created us for. He finally gets into the poison aspects of party when he gets into drunkenness and the very 1940s word carousing. It's like, like, a, night, like a footloose type, I don't know, like, stop carousing all those... Basically, these are two versions of, of drinking too much, of taking too much in, okay? And, and uh, dr- drunkenness, this, th- methai is just like another word for drunkenness. Komoi is allowed, we're going into this party to get completely lit, completely wasted word, okay? It's like, we are, this is going to be, methai is Grandpa Everett having 12 beers in his living room by himself. Komoi is MTV Spring Break. Okay, so you can understand those. And what, what, what Paul is saying is these two things are not for a Christian. And the reason they're not for a Christian is because God didn't create us to be out of control in a way that's just basically whatever. He's actually created us to be following his control and his lead. And we're going to get into that next week. All the crazy things that God calls you to do that are bananas, but amazingly life-giving. I wanted you to hear um, from a friend of mine on, on how this has poisoned his life. Um, take a listen to Jim Henderson.
1: Hi, I'm Jim. I am a grateful believer in Jesus Christ, and I have struggled with alcohol and cocaine addiction for most of my life. Um, I grew up in a Christian family, a uh, Baptist, going to a Baptist church, where my mother was an organist for the church, so I spent a lot of time in Sunday school and church. Um, Awana's, going to the Christian Youth Center. Um, in my childhood. so uh, my parents instilled the importance of Jesus Christ and his work on the cross um, at a very young age. Um, but when I got into high school, I, I, I was looking for something more I wanted needed, thought there was something more in life. And um, I gave into peer pressure and I got into alcohol, I got into drugs. Um, I got into drugs. And uh, through high school and and then into college, I got into cocaine really heavily. I started selling and became a dealer, um, living a high lifestyle, uh, doing everything that went against everything that I was taught through the church and my parents at a young age. Um, this continued on into addiction. Um, over a 25 to 30 year period of my life through college. And I was um, been an awesome woman and we got married and we had an awesome child. And after 15 years of marriage, because of my addictive personality, my, my alcohol, my drug use, I, our marriage ended in divorce. one of the most important things in my life my relationship with my son this uh, alcohol and this drug addiction started getting me into trouble I got DUI after DUI I got caught with uh, possession many times Uh, I believe it was uh, my last, my fourth DUI was on St. Patrick's Day of 2001 this was a day that saved the rest of my life um, I uh, was in jail again and uh, my sister brought me a Celebrity recovery Bible and uh, I was in the Greenwich County Jail and I took that Bible back to my jail so I started reading through some of the scriptures some of the testimonies and God spoke to me Right then and there, right where I was at. And he was leading me just to the right passages and I right then and there I broke down and I I asked Jesus back into my life. And that was that was on um, March twenty fifth of two thousand eleven. I was born again. And from then on, my sister taught me about told me about celebrate recovery. And the program they had ended going in Oswego at that time. Minooka Bible Church CR was not going at that time yet, but um, I was just thankful to find another one. I knew for four hours out of jail, I was at my first Celebrate Recovery Day, and I could see the joy and the peace that this program was bringing to people with all different issues in life. And um, from then on, I have been living uh, one day at a time and uh, it's brought me to Medica Bible Church and when they launched their summary recovery um, I was here for that for the first time I gave my testimony on the first night and uh, I am just so grateful for this church being real with God real with each other and real in the world um, i just so stoked as Pastor Errol would say um for this church and for their support for Celebrate Recovery. And um, my life has totally changed. And I am happy to tell you that on March 18th of 2016, I will celebrate five years of recovery with no alcohol, no drugs, no gambling. Thank
0: you. Amen. Like Flint, we have a poison issue, and we're ingesting it. It's in our life. But like Flint, we can know the solution. We can know that that the reality is that, um, just like Jim's talking about right there, the thing that Scripture says that we overcome the enemy by, we overcome Satan by, is the blood of the Lamb, what Jesus did for us, and the testimony of the saints. Talking about that impact. We are not a church full of people who are finished products. We're, full of, we're a church full of people who are giving their life over to the surrender of Jesus, bit by bit. We, we have people that are constantly coming to grips with, you know what, my life is not connected to him and it's fulfillment and what he's called me to. Last night after the service, um, we had a couple who just moved in together uh, a month ago saying... We really, and there are a couple who told me just before the service or last week before, um, that we, since we've been coming to NBC, we've been really convicted about this and we know that we need to get married and we want to get married. Um, and so they're going to in just a couple of weeks, they're going to be having a ceremony um, and going to get to celebrate that. Last night after the service, a couple came up to me and they said, we've been together for over 12 years. We've got a couple of kids, but we really feel like we want our life to come in connection with what God has called us to, to do. And so they're going to be getting married. Um, we've got people at this church that have got crazy rage problems and they're surrendering those over to Jesus. People who've got chemical issues and sexual issues and everything else. This is a church not built and based with a whole bunch of holy finished products. It's a church full of people that are broken that need Jesus and recognize how much Jesus is the one who not only pays for their sin, but enables them to continue to follow his lead, to walk away from sin, to make those choices.